Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Death. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series, Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of belief and unbelief, consciousness, and free will. So, get ready. Let's make sense of death. Let's start with an image inspired by one of the guests you'll hear in this compilation. Picture a large hourglass that sits in your living room, perhaps on your bookshelf or mantle, somewhere that's always on the periphery, available to focus on if you choose, but most of the time, it just lingers in the background rhythm of your environment. When you decide to look at the thing, you see that you have a clear view of the bottom bulb, where the grains are falling. You see a mound of sand which has been forming for as long as you can remember culminating. There's plenty of room in the bulb, or perhaps it's getting a bit full. You would think that both of those might provide clues as to how long this whole process might last, but then you try to look at the top bulb, which holds the remaining sand grains yet to fall. But the top bulb is shrouded by an opaque curtain which hangs just above the narrow channel. You don't know how many grains remain, but yet, more grains continue to fall. This hourglass is something like the human condition. An awareness of death, the impossibility of seeing the full picture, and a paralyzingly strange situation which constantly teeters between anxiety, denial, stoicism, gratitude, and urgency, with the knowledge that this hourglass exists somewhere on the periphery. This compilation will adjust that hourglass to a place of central focus, making it available for earnest contemplation. This is something Sam insists can and should be done in an honest and intimate way, and that being mindful of death's ever-present seat at the table of our experience is actually in direct service of bringing us back to life, ourselves, and each other. 
you will hear the same insight arrived at through many different paths in these conversations. As this 10-part series nears its conclusion with the final two episodes, it's a good time to remind ourselves of its overall purpose. The modern human condition is one which is subject to an onslaught of seemingly novel technological hurdles, relentlessly morphing geopolitical configurations and up-to-the-second information updates. It can feel like a dizzying bombardment where the struggle just to stay current and in contact with today's problems is the entire battle. The act of revisiting thoughts, observations, conversations, and considerations from years ago is out of fashion and lately seems to take extra concerted efforts. But some topics and conversations have an eternally relevant and evergreen quality to them. Some observations, even the ones with logical mistakes which have been exposed by the benefit of hindsight, take on an important light upon revisitation. But perhaps no other topic fits the descriptor of evergreen as much as the one featured in this compilation. There will be three themes braided together throughout the conversations you're about to hear. Life, death, and dying. These three threads are fundamentally intertwined, yet distinct. The death thread has an infinite and homogenous quality to it. The way in which death is experienced, which is to say not experienced, the very absence of experience, is something like the surprisingly controversial philosophical notion of nothing. Without diverting our path too much at the start, we'll note that a deep contemplation on the nature of nothingness is bewildering and constantly borders on mistakenly giving a somethingness quality to nothing. Nothing may be impossible to conceive. It may even cancel itself out. When speaking about death, this mistake is often made when death is imagined or feared as something like darkness and silence forever. Analogizing nothing to death is like saying that you will experience death in the same manner in which you experienced Paris, France at 11.13 a.m. in the year 1292, which is to say that you didn't. And before you existed, the idea of Paris, France in that year carried no meaning, no connotation, and would therefore be unimaginable. This is the same realization which underpins the classic observation from the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus when he wrote, Death is nothing to us, since when we are, death has not come, and when death has come, we are not. So, of the three ideas braided together in this compilation, death does not actually leave us much to say about it on its own. But the way in which its ever-present stitching in the fabric of our existence informs the other two ideas, dying and life, is the source from which many important and illuminating ideas unfurl. Let's now hear from Sam himself, from the introduction to episode 104, with Frank Ostasecki, an episode entitled The Lessons of Death. This will be our first clip to lay out how being mindful of death paints a shade of absurdity over many of our daily interactions, non-interactions, and flights from life. Well, today's topic is a topic we all think about, 
while doing our best not to think about it. The topic is death. And how we think about death changes depending on whether we're thinking about dying ourselves or about losing the people we love. But whichever side of the coin we take here, death is really an ever-present reality for us. And it is so whether we're thinking about it or not. It's always announcing itself in the background, on the news, in the stories we hear about the lives of others, in our concerns about our own health, in the attention we pay when crossing the street. If you observe yourself closely, you'll see that you spend a fair amount of energy each day trying not to die. And has long been noted by philosophers and contemplatives and poets, death makes a mockery of almost everything else we spend our lives doing. Just take a moment to reflect on how you've spent your day so far, the kinds of things that captured your attention, the things that you've been genuinely worried about. Think of the last argument you had with your spouse. Think of the last hour you spent on social media. Over the last few days, I've been spending an inordinate amount of time trying to find a new font for my podcast. This has literally absorbed hours of my time. So if you had stopped me at any point in the last 48 hours and asked me what I'm up to, what really concerns me, what deep problem I'm attempting to solve, the solution to which seems most likely to bring order to the chaos in my corner of the universe? The honest answer would have been, I'm looking for a font. Now, I'm not saying that everything we do has to be profound in every moment. I mean, sometimes you just have to find a font. But contemplating the brevity of life brings some perspective to how we use our attention. It's not so much what we pay attention to, it's the quality of attention. It's how we feel while doing it. If you need to spend the next hour looking for a font, you might as well enjoy it. Because the truth is, none of us know how much time we have in this life. And taking that fact to heart brings a kind of moral and emotional clarity and energy to the present. Or at least it can. And it can bring a resolve to not suffer over stupid things. Let me take something like road rage. This is probably the quintessential example of misspent energy. You're behind the wheel of your car, and somebody does something erratic, or they're probably just driving more slowly than you want. And you find yourself getting angry. Now, I would submit to you that that kind of thing is impossible if you're being mindful of the shortness of life. If you're aware that you're going to die, and that the other person is going to die, and that you're both going to lose everyone you love, and you don't know when, you've got this moment of life, this beautiful moment, this moment where your consciousness is bright, where it's not dimmed by morphine in the hospital on your last day among the living, And the sun is out, or it's raining. Both are beautiful. And your spouse is alive. And your children are alive. 
and you're driving. And you're not in some failed state where civilians are being rounded up and murdered by the thousands. You're just running an errand. And that person in front of you, who you will never meet, whose hopes and sorrows you know nothing about, but which if you could know them, you would recognize are impressively similar to your own, is just driving slow. This is your life, the only one you've got, and you will never get this moment back again. And you don't know how many more moments you have. No matter how many times you do something, there will come a day when you do it for the last time. You've had a thousand chances to tell the people closest to you that you love them. In a way that they feel it, and in a way that you feel it. And you've missed most of them. And you don't know how many more you're going to get. You've got this next interaction with another human being to make the world a marginally better place. You've got this one opportunity to fall in love with existence. So why not relax and enjoy your life? Really relax. Even in the midst of struggle. Even while doing hard work. Even under uncertainty. You are in a game right now. And you can't see the clock. So you don't know how much time you have left. And yet you're free to make the game as interesting as possible. You can even change the rules. You can discover new games that no one has thought of yet. You can make games that used to be impossible suddenly possible and get others to play them with you. But whatever you do, however seemingly ordinary, you can feel the preciousness of life. And an awareness of death is the doorway into that way of being in the world. We'll now listen in on Sam's conversation with Ostaseki. Here, they stay on the theme of being mindful of the reality of death as a way to enrich our lives. Frank Ostaseki co-founded the Zen Hospice Project in 1987, which integrated Buddhist mindfulness practices into end-of-life care. He authored a book entitled The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, which is where you can find deeper contemplations of the ideas that you'll hear introduced in this clip. This comes from the same episode as the previous clip, episode 104, The Lessons of Death. What are the, the things that people are most confused about, most surprised by? What, what, what is waiting there to be discovered by someone who, who really hasn't thought much about death and has you know, avoided thinking about it, frankly? And what is the value of, of learning those lessons sooner rather than later? Yeah, great question. You know, I mean, I don't know what happens after we die, Sam. I don't know. Um, We'll find out, right? But I, I think that without a reminder of death, we tend to take our life for granted and we become lost in these endless pursuits of self-gratification, you know? But, you know, as I was mentioning, when we keep it close at hand, you know, at our fingertips, I think it reminds us not to hold on so tightly. 
And I think we take ourselves and our ideas a little less seriously. And I, I think we let go a little more easily. And, and what I find is that when there's a reflection on death, we come to understand that we're all in the boat together. <laughs> and I think this helps us to be kinder and gentler to one another, actually. You know, the habits of our life, they have a powerful momentum, right? They propel us toward, you know, right unto the moment of death. And so the obvious question arises, what habits do I want to create? Not whether or not they'll give me a better afterlife, but here in this life, you know, my thoughts are not harmless. My thoughts take shape as actions. And, you know, you know the old story, they develop into habits and harden into character. So an unconscious relationship with my thoughts leads me to reactivity. And, um, and I want to live a life that's more responsible and more, I want to say clean. That's the best way I could, I would describe it. Yeah. Living with an awareness of death is obviously a, an ancient spiritual practice. I mean, this, an admonition that one should do this dates back as, as far as Socrates and the Buddha and several books in, in the, the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes. And, and I think all three of those are, are more or less contemporaneous with one another. But it, go, it must go back further than that. And so it's, it's, it's no accident that monks and, and renunciates and contemplatives do this very deliberately. They focus on death and they live their lives, they seek to live their lives as though they could end at any moment. And they're, and they're trying to prioritize those things that will be the things that make sense in one's last hour of life. Again, this is often framed by a kind of otherworldly belief, but certainly not always. And I remember Stephen Levine, who you just mentioned, at one point decided to live a year consciously doing this, consciously living a year as he would want to live a year if it were going to be his last year. And this, this struck me as an amazing thing to do. But of course, he had more than one more year to live. In fact, I think he had at least 20 at that point. He died a couple of years ago. I mean, there's a bit of a paradox here because there are many things, many good things in life, not merely superficial things that we can only engage, that we can only seek with real energy based on the assumption that we will live a fairly long time. And I mean, something like the decision to have a child or to spend five or more years on, on your next project. And in most cases, it is a safe assumption that we have at least an average span of time in which to do these things. How do you square that with this, this imperative that we not take life for granted and that we use the clarifying wisdom of impermanence in each moment insofar as we're able? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that, one of the ways we can shift the conversation, even the one that you and I are having, is that it isn't all about preparing for my death. It isn't all about this moment at which I stop breathing, but more about how do I live my life on an ongoing basis? You know, um, I had a heart attack a few years ago, and one of the things I did after that heart attack is I did some reading about other people who had had heart attacks. And one of the people I met up on was Maslow. You know, Maslow suffered a near-fatal heart attack at one point in his life. And, and afterwards, he wrote this beautiful thing. He said, the confrontation with death and the reprieve from it, the reprieve from it makes everything look so precious, so sacred, so beautiful, that I feel more strongly than ever the impulse to love it, to embrace it, and to let myself be overwhelmed by it. He said, my river has never looked so beautiful. Death and its ever-present possibility makes love 
compassionate love more possible. And that's beautiful, huh? It's not just about preparing for this final moment, really, but really looking and seeing how does it, what happens if these, if we stop separating life and death, if we stop pulling them apart, you know, if we saw them as one thing. So for me, one of the things that that does is help me really see the beauty of life. I mean, you know, think about the cherry blossoms that cover the hillsides of Japan every spring, right? Or this place where I teach in northern Idaho, where there are these blue flax flowers that last for a single day. How come they're so much more beautiful than plastic flowers? You know? I mean, isn't it their brevity? Isn't it the fact that they will end that is part of their beauty? So I think that's true with our human lives as well. It's not like, get ready, death is coming, you know, don't screw it up. It's more like, oh, how do I appreciate this? So for me, being with dying, is a lot, you know, has built in, built up in me a tremendous sense of gratitude and appreciation for the fact that I'm alive. And so it isn't just about, you know, trying to cram for a test, right? You know, this final test where we think we're going to pass fail. I don't know what happens after we die. I don't know. We'll find out how it is. But what I do know, and this is interesting, Sam, is that everybody's got a story about what happens after they die. And my experience is that that story shapes the way in which they die, and in some ways, even the way in which they live their life. We could talk about that. And that's, you know, I, I remember being with the president of the California Atheist Association who came to Zen Hospice to die. I was really proud that he came there, that he didn't feel anyone was going to push any dogma on him, that we weren't going to try and talk him into some kind of belief system, and that it could go the way he needed it to go. It's not my job to convince him of something otherwise, you know? It's my job to find out What's his vision? You know, how does he need to go through this? Actually, I want to ask you about that because it's, it has struck me more and more that secularists and atheists are really lacking resources to guide them, both when they get sick and, and need to think about their own deaths or, or confront the deaths of those close to them. It just is a fact that there isn't a strong, familiar secular tradition around how to perform a funeral, right? I mean, who do you call when, right. when right. You know, someone close to you dies? No matter how atheistic you are, many people are left calling their rabbi or their priest or, and just asking them to dumb it down because the only people who know how to perform funerals and the only, the only language around these moments in life is just explicitly framed by by religion. And it, it needn't be. I mean, you know, I, I did hundreds of memorials for people through the AIDS epidemic, you know, and most of them had no, you know, as you say, some of them had an early religious training. And we can talk about how that influences the way in which we die, by the way. But, you know, so we had to create things. We had to draw, you know, ritual, how, you know how it is with ritual. Ritual has this way of bringing forward the truth that's already there in the room, in a way. True ritual, different than ceremony evokes something fundamental in us, we could say. It might draw on an ancient wisdom or some, you know, ancient practice, but really it's about how do we evoke the truth that's right here, right now? That's often what, what characterized a lot of the memorial services that I did. But one of the things that I saw with people, whether they were, had religious training or not, one of the things that really mattered most of them was relationship. What's their relationship? with themselves, with the people that they cared about in their lives, you know, with reality, 
however we might define that. And so one of the tickets in, if you will, or one of the paths in for people who even had sworn off religion years ago was some sense of interdependence, we might call it, or connection is a better way to say it. That was their, that was their religion. I, mean, I could share hundreds of stories with you about people who had no religious training at all, but loved their time in nature. And so we would work with that, you know, we'd work with that experience as a way of helping them ease into the mystery of what happens in dying. I mean, look, dying is, we know at least this much. We know that dying is much more than a medical event, you know? And so the profundity of what occurs in the dying process is too big to fit into any model, whether that's a medical model or a religious model. It's too big. It shakes us loose of all of our, you know, it, all the ways we've defined ourselves, all the identities we've carried over all these years, they're either stripped away by illness or they're gracefully given up, but they all go. And then who are we? You know? And I think these are questions that people wrestle with in the time as they come closer to the end of their lives. Of course, if they have some religious or spiritual training, it influences that, that exploration. But, you know, it doesn't, it, it comes up for people anyway. Even those people who think, Dying is a dial tone, you know, <laughs> that, you know, where there's nothing that happens. Even them, their, the reflection on their relationships and how they've conducted those relationships is really important. I mean, this really big question at the end of people's lives is usually something not like, you know, is there life after death? But it's something more like, am I loved? And did I love? You heard Ostaseki mention the American psychologist Abraham Maslow and his encounter with a medical diagnosis which brought him psychologically closer to his own death. Our next clip features an author and psychologist who wrote specifically about Maslow and will flesh out this story completely. You've likely heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This was his attempt to model a sort of ordered checklist of universal human needs, which are contingent on one another. It's been popularly presented as a pyramid, with the lowest and more urgent needs at the bottom, and the higher, more transcendent needs at the top, only reachable if the foundations below them are met. Maslow never actually drew this hierarchy as a pyramid, and it's difficult to tell if he would have ever endorsed this specific presentation. But regardless, the idea clearly resonated with the public and persists today. At the base of his hierarchy were physiological needs such as food, water, and shelter. Once these basic needs are met, individuals then seek safety and security, followed by love and belonging, esteem, and ultimately, self-actualization. That last piece, the self-actualization one, is the one which really piqued the interest of the next guest. The guest is Scott Barry Kaufman. He wrote a book entitled Transcend, which was his effort to understand what Maslow may have meant by self-actualization and how it might be applied to our own psychological journeys. Kaufman picks up on the point which Ostaseki made about a heart attack which Maslow suffered in 1967 and how this reminder of his own mortality significantly impacted his work and in some ways threw a wrench into his entire theory of the hierarchy of needs and may have crumbled the orderly pyramid model. This conversation was recorded while uncertainties around mortality and the COVID pandemic occupied the world's attention. 
which provided an interesting backdrop for thinking about death and transcendence. This is from episode 209, entitled, A Good Life. You know, there's a twist ending to my book, and it's not all about the peak experiences. What Maslow realized towards the end of his life is that really life is about the plateau experiences. Yeah. And that's not a phrase that's used often. When people talk about Maslow, they may talk about peak experiences, but his great insight, perhaps his greatest insight, was the, just the past couple years of his life when he was facing his own mortality. And he was confused because according to his hierarchy of needs model, if he goes you know, down to the bottom of the hierarchy all of a sudden and has these concerns about about safety, well, that should block self-actualization and block feelings of transcendence. But he wrote in his, in his personal diaries, how can it be that this experience is giving me a greater appreciation of my life and I'm feeling these transcendent experiences more than I ever have in my entire life? And, and, and it took me facing this mortality to get there. Mm. So that was confusing to him. That was, a par- that was very paradoxical to him. It kind of threw out of whack his whole hierarchy, <laughs> in a sense. And in my book, I try to reconcile that paradox. That's one of the most fundamental paradoxes I try to reconcile because there's one literature in psychology showing that when you face mortality salience on a daily basis, like you live in impoverished neighborhoods or you live in any, you know, you grow up with a lot of discord or chaos in your environment, you don't experience a lot of trans, these kinds of transcendent peak experiences. You're, you're, you are focused on most immediate concerns. You tend to, Daniel Nettle and other evolutionary psychologists have shown you focus on, on mating, you focus on a food acquisition status. I mean, you focus on the things that you, you need for survival and reproduction. But it seems like if you can transcend living in that constant state of, of chaos and you face mortality, then there's a group of people in the psychological literature that report their fear of death is gone. They um, report really new, newfound sense of meaning in life, new projects they want to take on, new creative aspects. And the way I reconcile this is so much of that literature on mortality salience doesn't take doesn't look at individual differences in deprivation of needs. So I think there is a great value in in transcending your your need for your basic needs. So transcending your incessant need for esteem, self-esteem, transcending your incessant mm. need for connection with only the people that you feel a connection to as opposed to a connection to all of humanity. You can transcend and and this is a big one because Obviously, some people don't have a choice in the matter if they're born in certain neighborhoods or environments where there's a lot of violence and chaos in their environment. It's, you know, better, it's easier said than done to just transcend it. But if you can transcend it so these basic needs are not, you're not preoccupied with them anymore. The research I've seen shows that, that mortality salience under that state of consciousness actually gives you the heightened, most heightened states of transcendence that a person could possibly have. So this was a big sort of paradox I was trying to reconcile with these two dueling literatures. You know, on the one hand, mortality salience leading to momentary concerns of survival and reproduction, and then this other literature in positive psychology showing that mortality salience can lead to greater meaning and post-traumatic growth. I guess almost everything we're talking about is susceptible to this dual 
you know, it's almost a pre-trans distinction that Ken Wilber made. I have not found a lot of use for Ken Wilber in my thinking about these things, but perhaps we could go there if you're a student of his. But he famously gave us this pre-trans fallacy, which is the the pre-rational can sound a lot like the transrational, and this is sort of contextualizes Freud's dismissal of mystical experience as the oceanic feeling. Is this is the return to childhood, a return to infancy? This is the pre-rational mind, you know, wallowing in its own energies. And Ken Wilber, I think, quite usefully pointed out that it can sound like that, but the transcendence of separation that one can experience after one has the full toolkit of rationality on board is not the same thing as a return to infancy. It's the trans-rational, so it's hence the pre-trans fallacy. But yeah, many of these points, like when you think about, this is somewhere near the hull of the, the boat, the feeling of like a self-efficacy, that you can do things well and that you can master various challenges and you know, you're the antithesis of the, the learned helplessness that coincides with a kind of depression. You want that, but if you keep going in that healthy direction, you also recognize that you basically don't control anything. Ultimately, I can't, it's a mystery as to whether or not I'm going to get to the end of the sentence in grammatically complete form, right? And when I make a mistake, I didn't control that. When I do it successfully, I didn't control that. You know, this is, I, I, on some level, I'm a witness to this performance. And so it is with all of life. Anything can happen at any moment. We're hanging out over the precipice every moment. I mean, just as a matter of physical health, when are you going to have a stroke or a heart attack? Who the hell knows, right? This is just a probability distribution over each moment that you have to learn to live with. And yeah, it's this pandemic has taught many of us that history can swallow up a society with nothing more than a, a microbe born of a sneeze or cough, you know, on a moment's notice. And we're still trying to dig out from the implications of all this with the understanding that it could have been 10 times worse and, and may yet be 10 times worse the next time around. So it's the sense that we really can control anything is an illusion. And yet at one level, and that's not to nullify the difference between feeling self-efficacy in the midst of one's various projects and feeling like one can't do anything worth doing. I mean, that's still an enormous difference. You know, I don't know if I've resolved that paradox, but it's, I think it's the degree of focus, the kind of the wide angle or the, the microscopic focus. Each can be useful by turns. And the microscopic focus reveals that control is, is imaginary, though the wide angle is there's orderly behavior and getting what one wants out of life and all the failures to do that. And those are different. Yeah. At the heart of a lot of what you're saying, and you're saying a lot of really good stuff. At the heart of a lot of it is the fear of uncertainty. This is this is just cuts through it all. You can live your life with a fear of uncertainty, and the and the greater and in sort of a linear way, the greater the fear. The more we go into this state, psychologists have identified psychological entropy, where we, at the ultimate extreme, we we just can't cope and we get depression. We feel helpless, as you mentioned, or you can live in a constant state of exploration. And exploration means that you are actively exploring the unknown. It, the unknown excites you. The, the unknown entices you. The more you can master and challenge the unknown, 
the happier you are mm. in your life. So I think that we're constantly, to be human is to be constantly pulled in one way or another. I'm a big fan of, of, of not acting as though anyone's above anyone else and some, they, they've reached some high estate that they're no longer human. To me, to become fully human is recognizing that you have these tendencies within you and you have to constantly choose the exploration option and, and learn how to manage the uncertainty that's inevitable in your lives. You, you're, right, you're so right in the sense that this moment puts a lot of things in context for people. You know, it's funny, to, not funny, it's, it's tragic, but you hear people talking about as though it just dawned on them for the first time in their lives that there's uncertainty in their lives. You know, for some people, maybe this is the first time they've, they've really thought about that, you know? But you, you could remind them of all the many other things that they've had throughout their lives before this moment that were incredibly uncertain and could have led to a lot of danger and people still made decisions and people still did certain things. This is kind of like, because it's on the news, you know, we're all so focused on this being the great uncertainty when we could create a news program with 40 million other forms of uncertainty that you have during the course of your day. I, you know, I say, I bet you didn't know about this could happen to you today too, you know? So I think just the heart of a lot of what you're saying is living a life of, are you really going to live that life with a spirit of exploration and openness to new experiences and curiosity for the unknown? Or are you committed to, to fearing it and, and having that illusion of control? Because obviously, you know, and, and Alan Watts wrote so beautifully about this, we, the only certainty is that there's uncertainty. In that clip, you heard some echoes of Sam's arguments relating to the illusory nature of free will. We have compilations dedicated to both free will and consciousness, which are both natural partners for the subject of death. For what is death other than a place where consciousness ceases to carry its own mystery? At this intersection of the exploration of consciousness and the awareness of death, we're going to introduce Roland Griffiths, Griffiths has been spearheading psychedelic research at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Most of his research is focused on the use of psilocybin and its effects on spirituality and well-being. He often speaks about the profoundly transformative effects of targeted, limited use of psilocybin. And among those who have taken it, their near-universal subjective observations that it produced experiences that were not only beautiful and meaningful, but also true. Sam shares Griffith's interest in this area of study, and in particular, is interested in how it relates to anxieties about dying and the suffering associated with it. In 2021, Griffiths posted a video to his website in which he was providing a regular update on his research program. After a few minutes of outlining the importance of the program generally, Griffith shifted to a more personal announcement. In my remaining minutes, I'd like to conclude by sharing some very personal observations that bear on this topic of spirituality and well-being. Ten months ago, I went in for a routine screening colonoscopy, believing myself to be very healthy, awakening from anesthesia with the news that I likely had a stage four cancer diagnosis which has been largely unresponsive. 
to treatment. Now, ironically, the first psilocybin therapeutic study we conducted was treatment of depression and anxiety in patients who had a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. And in brief, that well-controlled study showed large, rapid, and enduring decreases in depression and anxiety after a single session with psilocybin with mystical experience scores on treatment days predicting the magnitude of treatment effect. Over the course of that study, I spent many hours with these participants before, during, and after sessions. And I often wondered how I would deal with a similar situation. (laughs) Well, well, now I know. (laughs) So where did I find myself after the diagnosis? Well, initially, frankly, in disbelief. Uh, It it felt like a dream. felt like it could not be true, a proverbial bad trip, if you will. But over just a few days, I quite quickly began to explore the range of psychological states that understandably emerge under such conditions. Depression, anxiety, fear, resentment, denial, combat, fighting the cancer, all of which seem both extremely uncomfortable and unwise. So given also my skeptical inclinations and scientific training, adoption of supernatural beliefs such as life after death is not a viable option. So for myself, what I came to recognize very quickly was what I had learned about the nature of mind from long-term meditation practice and from psychedelics became immediately applicable. The key insight is that we don't need to identify with thoughts or emotion as they arise, but instead we can turn with great interest to investigate the present moment, and we can cultivate gratitude for the astonishing mystery in which we find ourselves. In principle, we can do this at any moment that we choose to. So just reflect on the fact that we humans are these highly evolved sentient creatures. So we can see, hear, touch, taste. We've developed language and mathematics and the scientific method for discovering something about the nature of reality. But inexplicably, we have this capacity to be aware that we're aware, we're conscious. For me, the psychological off-ramp from potential emotional misery has been the cultivation of gratitude for the precious gift of life itself, of being conscious, awake to the mystery of this present moment. As unlikely as it may may seem, my wife and I have experienced my diagnosis as a gift, a blessing really, and I've often reflected what a tragedy it would have been to have been run over by a bus on my way to what I thought to be a mundane medical screening appointment that day. Because today, I am more awake, alive, and grateful than I've ever been before in my entire life. Now, that said, I cannot know if I will maintain this sense of gratitude and equanimity in face of what appears to be inevitable disease progression. But what I can do is lean into my strong intention to joyfully 
celebrate the preciousness of life. My heartfelt invitation to each of you is for you to join me in this celebration, to stay awake to this sense of profound and precious interconnectedness. We are all in this together, we really are. It's accompanied by the sense of benevolence, meaning, purpose, that feels to be so completely true. It's astonishingly beautiful. So please, join me in the celebration. Thank you. Sam reached out to Griffiths after hearing this news and brought him on to Making Sense for a conversation about the potential of psychedelic research for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and addiction, as well as the orientation we take towards our own deaths. We'll jump into the moment of the conversation where Sam turns to Griffiths' own mortality and his interest with the eternal question of what might happen to us when and after we die. This is from episode 306, Psychedelics and Mortality. I think I emailed you when I saw the video that you released describing that you had gotten this diagnosis and how it had changed your your relationship to your own mortality. You know, my, my first thought was obviously I, I was very sorry to hear about the cancer, but uh, I was so happy to see the state you're in with respect to your your relationship to it. I mean, it was just it was really it was so in, infectious and yeah. I mean, it just it, you know, again, I'm somebody who thinks about death a lot, and I'm somebody who who really tries to make use of that thought to enhance the you know, my focus on my real priorities you know, in in normal life. Uh, all the while knowing that actually getting a, a terminal diagnosis, you know, must sharpen up that point considerably in a way that is hard to manufacture for oneself and you know prior to such a diagnosis and hence my my question to you and it was just you know, just seeing you as an older brother have this experience before me you know it was quite you know, the kind of the wisdom that was you know, leaking out of your pores uh, and is leaking out of your pores on this topic is is contagious and it's really it's wonderful to see how you're navigating this it's quite inspiring yeah, your email to me was uh, was really nice because you acknowledged that there was some challenge to what I was going through, but you were recognizing the upside of it. And and so one thing that I, I've found is so so many people want to come and 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 just say how sorry they are or how awful that must be, mm. <laughs> and, and that is completely contrary to how I'm holding the experience. Yeah. And 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 I find myself pushing back on that uh, immediately because I'm, I'm just not going to embrace that there's challenge here. And so, and people will write me, I hope you're feeling better. And, I, and mm. I'll say, better than what? I've been doing, I've been doing great. <laughs> and so, you know, the assumption is that you're, you're not, not doing well. So, yeah, yeah, thank you for yeah. that. Yeah, but I, when I think about the the effects, the the long term effects of my last mushroom trip, which I took you know, again three years ago, on this very day. When you're talking about changes in the contents of consciousness, all of these changes are by definition temporary, right? And so it's not ultimately having that experience. It lands in the in the storehouse of memory to whatever degree, and very much like 
dreams, psychedelic experiences can be hard to remember. I mean, you're, you're having them in a, in a state that is fairly discontinuous with one's normal waking consciousness, and, and it can be very hard to, to hold on to any of it. But the thing I, I, I feel that I took away, perhaps more than anything else, was um, a sense that I actually don't have a fear of death itself. And, and that was um, kind of surprising. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, and I, I would separate death and, and you know, actual, you know, the actual experience of dying from all of the attendant chaos and pain that may be associated with any specific mode of dying. I mean, you know, obviously somebody getting hit by a bus is very quick, but in a situation of long-term illness, there's all of the the experience of what it's like to be ill and all of the treatments and all you know, that the medical adventures and misadventures and and you know, so I can't say I'm looking forward to any of that and it's um you know I'm sure even in your state of you know real gratitude there there are ups and downs uh, medically but when I think about the actual experience of having one's mind lose any reference point to the details of one's life. I mean, there's the really prosaic version of that. I mean, we all happily go to sleep each night and lose our experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking completely, and we're very grateful for it, right? So there's, there's that. But when I think about the intensity of, or the possible intensity of dying, whatever that experience is or could be, I came away from the, the you know, the five grams of uh, mushrooms while blindfolded, feeling like whatever death is, there's no way it's more intense than that, right? I mean, that, like that thing I just went through, <laughs> there's just no way to turn up the volume on experience beyond that. And you know, obviously, that's an empirical claim, which I could be wrong about, but I, I came away feeling like when you're, you're, you know, you're, you're shot out of a, a nuclear cannon, it's all fine, really. There was just so much love and gratitude that was along for the ride uh, when there was no longer a reference point to me in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if there is a residue in my life, it's that where I just feel like uh, you know, death itself is not a problem. You know, and I, you know, again, separating it from all of the other transitory experiences one can have on the way to that final one. I, I don't know if it, yeah. I don't know if that resonates with you at all from from your experiences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, so the contemplation about death is uh, it's certainly a really interesting one. So when we were running our cancer trial, and and I ended up asking all of our volunteers prior to upon admission just to try to understand where they were coming. So I'd say, well, what do you think happens when we die? And you know, any number of them had wonderful thoughts about meeting relatives and going into new lives or whatever. But a number said, no, it's like computer down, power's Mm -hmm. off, that's it. And for those people, I'd say, well, so what's the, what's the probability that you put on that, that there's absolutely nothing after death? And they say, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's what I believe. So, well, give me a percentage. Oh, it's say 95%. <laughs> and I would go, what? Ninety-five percent chance? <laughs> you know, you <laughs> so 
you actually don't need much of a percentage there to make one curious about mm. the very nature of what death is. And, and for me, it's, it's as close to zero as it can get, but it can't be zero because I can't know. And, and I think that's all I need to remain deeply curious and wanting to be awake to the experience of, of dying because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> mm. uh, so there's a, a funny sense, at least right now, that I'm, I'm deeply interested in that. Although, again, I, you know, I come out of a, a deep skeptical and scientific reductionistic viewpoint that would put the probability of that at not, not zero, because I don't think that's humble, <laughs> but something pretty close to zero. The, uh, the other thing I just want to share with you is um, over the course of some of the treatment where, where things became increasingly clear that there were no good response options and cure was out of the question, I'd come back from a, getting a second opinion at Sloan Kettering for some radical intervention. And, uh, and the next day I woke to the the image of the hourglass, which I think is a lovely image. And it's, it, it's the finitude of, of life. And that just came up really clearly for me. So that hourglass has been turned and you can see the sand running out of the top chamber into the bottom chamber. You're not quite sure how quickly it's running out, but you do know that at some point that last grain of sand is going to drop. And there's something lovely about that image. And I, mm -hmm. it leads me to think that we should all have hourglasses, big hourglasses mm -hmm. in, our, <laughs> in, our, in our living rooms or bedrooms to remind us mm -hmm. <laughs> about the finitude because that, you know, that's, to me, that's what's brought this into such clear focus. You heard Griffiths conjure the hourglass, which was the inspiration for our opening metaphor. To sharpen the picture even more, perhaps receiving a diagnosis of a terminal illness or approaching older age generally, starts to pull back the curtain a bit to reveal a somehow shockingly dwindling amount of sand left in the top bulb, as if this should be a surprise to any of us. But all of this is difficult to balance how does one keep this truth in mind without feeling a constant sense of panic or anxiety? How does one zoom into the narrow stretch of glass between the top and bottom bulbs of the hourglass and simply appreciate the present moment where sand is still miraculously or mysteriously flowing through? The temptation to simply not think about any of this stuff, to fear death to an unhealthy degree, or at worst, to deny the reality of it through various means of belief and distraction, can be very strong. Before we get to the next clip, we wanted to share a passage from a landmark book in Thinking About Death, Ernst Becker's The Denial of Death, published in 1973. The book enjoyed surprising commercial success, won the Pulitzer Prize, and received widespread praise from philosophical and psychological circles. Becker's strong writing style clearly struck a chord 
as he described the human as a distinct animal because of our awareness of the existential crisis of death. And as his title suggests, all the ways in which we come to deny this ultimate of all disorienting traps. Becker writes, Man is a worm and food for worms. This is the paradox. He is out of nature and hopelessly in it. He is dual, up in the stars, and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. His body is a material, fleshy casing that is alien to him in many ways. The strangest and most repugnant way being that it aches and bleeds and will decay and die. Man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. The lower animals are, of course, spared this painful contradiction as they lack a symbolic identity and the self-consciousness that goes with it. The knowledge of death is reflective and conceptual and animals are spared it. They live and they disappear with the same thoughtlessness. A few minutes of fear, a few seconds of anguish, and it is over. But to live a whole lifetime with the fate of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, that's something else. Becker's style was aggressive, almost linguistically grabbing your head and pushing it in the direction of the proverbial hourglass. He considered this crucial and argued that our unique awareness of our own mortality fuels elaborate symbolic systems of social structures, religion, culture, and morality, which represent our attempts to cope with this terrifying dilemma. These systems provide a sense of meaning, but can become potent sources of conflict, war, genocide, and violence. Becker, like the other authors and speakers here, hope to encourage us to confront our own mortality. In his case, not just for the psychological benefits, but to understand larger sociological effects of our understandable but destructive denial. We'll move on now to a clip from Sam's conversation with Scott Galloway. Galloway is a tech entrepreneur, investor, commentator, and contributor to journalism outlets, mostly about the politics of big tech companies and society. Most of his conversation with Sam was not focused on anything like death, but near the end of the episode, he asked Sam directly about meditation and happiness. Our next and final compilation in the Essential series is all about meditation, but this clip fits well here, as Sam steers his response directly towards reflections on mortality and how a meditative practice can deeply address the problems of anxiety, fear, or denial about death. This comes from episode 306, Wealth and Happiness. I have a question for you. Yeah. And I'm sincere about this question. Sure. So I read and I was forwarded some notes on you. I read that you're into the exploration of meditation. And, yeah. and I struggle with anger and what I call mild depression. And the thing I find most disappointing about it is that I look at my blessings I look at my mood and one doesn't foot to the other. And I'm trying to fix that as I get older. 
My sister summarized it perfectly two years ago. I talked to my sister every Sunday night and she said to me, she said, why are you so pissed off all the time? She's like, you have less reason to be pissed off than anybody I know. And you're pissed off all the time. So my question to you, and I'm sincere about this because I know nothing about meditation. Mm. What role can meditation play in my life trying to, trying to ensure that my blessings better foot or my mood better foots to my blessings? And what are some easy steps I can take to get started? It can play a very direct role. I think there's, you know, I'm not someone who puts a lot of weight on the, on what appears to be the low hanging fruit here. I mean, there's a lot of hype around mindfulness and the hype to a significant degree is warranted. There's just no question that it, it can be very, very helpful very quickly for people. But the deepest promise of, of the practice for me is not finding some linear correlation between, you know, minutes spent practicing and feeling better in any kind of linear way. And, and there's, because much of our suffering is, is not something we would want to be without, or at least, you know, re- reframed, it connects us to what is really deep and, and beautiful and awe-inspiring about life. Just reflections on mortality. It's like re- reflections on mortality is not, it's not a straight path to feeling better because death scares the shit out of most people when they really think about it. And when you, when you meditate on the fact or contemplate the fact that you, if you live long enough, will lose everyone you love, otherwise the people you love will be losing you, mm-hmm. that can seem merely morbid. And some people will feel merely morbid when thinking those thoughts. But approach from another angle that is the doorway to real wisdom and an ability to prioritize your time and to align your values with what you you recognize by the light of that contemplation are are really your deepest values right and you know much of what we've talked about and you know people getting as you say just caught howling in the money storm even when they no longer have to is born of a failure to recognize what is truly precious in life which is the time you you have and how how you how you can spend it with the people you love most contemplating what makes life really precious and not miss not always deferring your your happiness to some future time when you when you think you will have really earned the right to relax so but all of that said what mindfulness is there are different kinds of meditation but you know the kind i recommend is is mindfulness it's an ability to to one, where you recognize how distractible you are in every moment and what you're distracted by, by tendency, are, are thoughts about the past and the future. And you spend a little time noticing this, you notice that the character of those thoughts are mostly unhappy. You know, if you're dealing with anger a lot, you're, you're thinking thoughts that are making you angry. You know, you're noticing, you walk into a room and you notice the stuff you don't like and you notice people's behavior that annoys you and you and then you judge yourself in comparison with others, and you're thinking about the past, and you're kind of rehearsing your regrets about things that didn't go right, and and then you're thinking about the future, and you're th- and you're you're thinking thoughts that make you anxious, and you're spending, and, and not just you personally, but you know everyone is spending more or less all their time adrift on this conversational sea, and they're not aware, they're, they don't haven't developed the requisite concentration to be able to break that spell. And so what training in mindfulness does is allows you to notice a thought as a thought and just let it go. And that ability very quickly, once you can do it, becomes a kind of superpower because you can then 
get off the ride of any one of these negative emotions more or less as early as you want to. You're in a position to say, okay, is it really worth being angry about this? And when the answer is no, as it is, you know, 99% of the time, you can just, then you let the thoughts that are making you angry, that are telling you, you know, every reason why you have to be angry at this person, you can just let those go because they just become the soundtrack of your mind that you can ignore. And the, the moment you, you ignore it, it, it really does dissipate. And the physiology of anger that has been built up by you being identified with thought in previous moments, if you can just become interested in that, I mean, just li- literally just feel it as, a, as an object of curiosity, it dissipates very, very quickly. I mean, it's, it's literally impossible to stay angry for more than 30 seconds if you can pay attention closely to the, the way the emotion gets kindled by thought, the way it arises, the way that you, you, you feel this, this physiological change. And the moment you shine the light of, of, of really focused mindfulness on it, it dissipates immediately. And so it is with anxiety and, and, and other classically negative emotions. So it really it does become a very direct antidote to psychological suffering. So yeah, I, mean, I, I recommend it. It's the most important thing I've ever learned. There's no question. You know, it's something, so first off, thanks for that. And occasionally when I go to sort of these, what I'll call retail or pop yoga classes, and the thing I've taken away is, all right, thought becomes intention, becomes action. So if you can arrest thoughts at the start line when they're not productive thoughts, they never turn into intention. And right. Trying to develop that sort of mechanism. That, and you know what has helped me, and it's something we share when I was reading your biography, my atheism has really helped. And yeah. that is, I've come to this recognition and this acceptance that at some point I'm going to look into my kids' eyes and, our, and know our relationship is coming to an end. And I find that motivating. And I think a lot about end of life, but not in a macabre way. It's actually quite motivating for me. And I try to imagine in that moment being upset about things that happen to me, and that's fine. But what I don't want to do is be upset about the way I reacted to things and that I had outsized reactions. And that is, you know, I want to be sad about the bad things that happened to me, but what I don't want is a lot of regret over the outsized reactions I had to things that were inconsequential and that, that's saying life isn't about what happens to you, it's how you react to what happens to you. Yeah. But that finality and that recognition that, it's, that this is it, you know, there's a few things I'm 100% certain of, and I also recognize that my explanation for how we're all here, that there was nothing that it all exploded is no less outrageous than the notion that all oh, this was created in seven days by a guy with a scepter and flowing, flowing gray hair. But that, that atheism that I've accepted as I've gotten older has actually been very motivating and very comforting for me and has helped me to really think more about, okay, what is it that's going to help me look back as I do get towards the end and think, okay, mm. I, I check those boxes. Yeah, well, that's strangely counterintuitive to most religious people because the, the reaction you get from the religious on that point is, well, if, if this just all ends at death, what's the point? What's the point of being a good person? What's mm-hmm. the point of anything? Like, it seems to devalue life utterly for them if, if you tell them it's not eternal. But from the atheist side of things, it's flipped completely. It's like that, that is precisely what makes it precious. The only circumstance of of love and beauty and awe you can be sure of is this one. And given that, Mm -hmm. why not live as an examined life as possible and as deep a life as possible and make the most of this circumstance? Why would you think that it has to last forever to be 
of value. I mean, that's just, uh, that's, uh, I mean, the truth is eternity, the promise of eternity truly diminishes this life because, I mean, it's precisely the logic by which it makes total sense to be a suicide bomber and to, or to celebrate your kids being a suicide bomber because the life in this world is meaningless when held up against eternity, right? And if, if you thought you can get into paradise by behaving like a sociopath in the next 15 minutes, well, then it becomes completely rational to be that sociopath. But if this is the one circumstance you know you have to connect with reality, why not make the most of it now? And yeah, I mean, so it just seems like the, the ethical logic of valuing life more and more, the less certain you are that you're going to get an infinite amount of it after you die. I mean, that, that seems pretty straightforward to me. If you're enjoying hearing the repeated discovery that mindfulness of death illuminates our lives, but are struggling to understand how one could balance this lesson with the relentless pressures of daily tasks, financial obligations, work, and everything else that seems to get in the way, then this next thinker is a good voice to pay attention to. Sam invited a writer by the name of Oliver Berkman to produce a course based on Berkman's book entitled Time Management for Mortals. As the name suggests, this course placed mortality and our finite lifespan at the core of its philosophy. We'll listen here to Berkman, who is fond of putting the average lifespan not in terms of days, heartbeats, years, or decades, but in terms of weeks. When the unit of measurement is weeks, the final number always sounds surprisingly small. This is Oliver Berkman from Time Management for Mortals, on episode 289. Arguably, time management is all that life is. Here we are, with this terrifyingly short lifespan of little more than 4,000 weeks on average. And the question of how to use this time wisely and well is the central challenge if we want to live lives of accomplishment and meaning, to connect deeply to the wonder the world has to offer, and to make the most of this utterly unlikely gift of getting some time on the planet as conscious creatures. So the lessons that follow are an attempt to combine certain essential philosophical and spiritual insights about time with a whole lot of concrete, usable, tactical tools for daily living. Because of course, it's on that daily level of work, family, travel, housework, finances, morning routines, all the rest of it, it's on that level that the rubber meets the road. I trust you'll agree with me that virtually everyone struggles with time in one way or another. The most obvious manifestation of this these days is busyness, the sense of being overwhelmed by more things that you have to do than you actually can do. Distraction is another obvious one, this seemingly paradoxical situation that we don't want to spend our time on the things we want to spend our time on, but would rather focus on something else, anything else, so that we never quite get around to what we claim to care about the most. And then arising from all this, there's also this ubiquitous, subtler sense that somehow this portion of our lives right here isn't quite it, that everything we're doing is for the purpose of some future time or that we're going to get our lives figured out soon, that we'll get on top of things and we'll live as we want to live, but that for now, many of our tasks are just things we have to get through to get them out of the way 
so that real life can begin sometime later. A lot of people have this feeling, as the English novelist Arnold Bennett put it, writing at the dawn of the modern busyness epidemic, that the years slip by and slip by and slip by, and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. Now, the guiding principle of this course, and I certainly didn't make it up, it's a theme in the work of everyone from Seneca the Roman Stoic to the Zen master Dogen and the philosopher Martin Heidegger, it's that all of these versions of the feeling of being in a struggle against time arise from a core kind of mistake in how we think about time and how we relate to it. Now, I don't want to imply that this is all just a matter of switching your mindset. Certainly, the situation is made worse by all kinds of cultural and economic pressures. So it's definitely not all your personal fault that you're so overwhelmed at work, for example, or that you can't resist glimpsing at social media. But changing our relationship to time into something more fulfilling and energizing, I think it does have to start with clearing up this fundamental issue. And what is this issue? Well, you could characterize it as an unwillingness to face the reality of our finitude. Let's talk briefly about finitude. I mentioned that we each only get about 4,000 weeks of life on average. Indeed, the whole of human civilization since the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia has unfolded over the span of only about 300,000 weeks. To think of this tiny portion of time set against the duration of, say, the existence of the Earth itself, on almost any meaningful timescale, as the philosopher Thomas Nagel has written, we will all be dead any minute. And perhaps the key consequence of this finitude is that it makes our choices matter. When it comes to how we use our time, because we don't have an endless amount of it, something is always at stake. Every decision to spend a portion of time on one thing is a decision not to spend it on a million other things instead. And in a world of effectively infinite inputs, limitless emails and articles to read, limitless demands from the boss, limitless ambitions you might have for your career, or people to date, or places to visit, it's inevitable for a finite human that there will always be vastly more to do, and indeed vastly more that's really worth doing, than you will ever have time for. And that mismatch between what we can conceive of doing and what we can actually do is really painful. To make things worse, our finitude also means we have very little control over how our brief stretch of time unfolds. So, yes, you have to make choices, and your choices matter, but you can't ever know what the future holds, whether your choices were the right ones or what's coming next down the pike. Instead, in each moment, we're just totally vulnerable to events. Anything could happen at any time, and we can never achieve the authentic sense of security in our travels through time that we crave. Now, all of these are just the indisputable facts about being a finite human. But they're uncomfortable and they're anxiety-inducing facts. And so what we do by default is to pursue strategies of emotional avoidance, to try to find ways not to have to feel that discomfort. For example, we might tell ourselves, maybe subconsciously, that real life is going to begin when we finally graduate college or when we get married or when we have kids or when we retire. And that's so that we don't have to face the anxiety of knowing that, in fact, 
right now, this is our only shot at life, that we need to do the things we care most about right now. Or if you're a so-called productivity geek, like I certainly was for many years, obsessed with every cool new time management hack, well, on some level, you're probably telling yourself that you're doing all this because you're en route to becoming so efficient, so optimized and self-disciplined that you will eventually be able to make time for everything that matters, that you'll achieve a kind of mastery of your time that means you won't have to face tough choices or risk the emotional vulnerability of never knowing if things are going to work out. As the psychotherapist Bruce Tift puts it, we will do a lot to avoid consciously participating in what it's like to feel claustrophobic, imprisoned, powerless, and constrained by reality. We seek ways of managing time that are not really focused on making the best of our little portion of it, but rather on making ourselves feel as if we don't only have a little portion of it, like actually we are limitless and omnipotent, or at least that we're going to become limitless and omnipotent just as soon as we can find the right time management techniques and the necessary reserves of self-discipline. As we'll see, none of this works because it fails to acknowledge our real situation. And if you've ever suspected that pursuing these sorts of productivity methods is actually making you busier, more scattered, and less fulfilled, I'm going to explain why you're completely right. For our penultimate clip, we wanted to briefly touch on a question that's been asked with greater frequency in recent decades. Do we have to die at all? If the body is just a kind of biological machine, which has parts that wear down, become infected, and malfunction given enough time? Could we hypothetically, or given the right technical advancements, not so hypothetically, maintain the machine, swap out parts, and keep it running forever? One can imagine the body as something like a mechanical clock with a series of gears and rods which keep it ticking as long as someone is there to clean out any gunk, protect it from power failures, fires, or meteor strikes, as a poetic example, the Salisbury Cathedral clock in England is a contender for the longest continuous running clock in the world. It's been ticking for over 600 years with the help of generations of humans who have maintained, cleaned, and swapped out broken parts, ironically while their own human bodies wore down beyond repair and led to their deaths. We'll listen in on Sam's conversation with the physicist and biologist Jeffrey West from episode 86, which was called From Cells to Cities. This is a part of the conversation where they bring up the idea of human lifespans. You'll hear Sam and West reference the work of Aubrey de Grey, who is a somewhat controversial advocate for radical extension of human lifespans, potentially to the point of the elimination of death. Sam and West certainly don't go that far in this clip. What do you think the prospects are for radically extending human life? I mean, there are people like Aubrey de Grey who, oh. <laughs> who treat this as an engineering problem yes. that will one day be solved. Yep. Does your research suggest an answer one way or the other? Yeah, my research suggests the opposite. Mine is that, uh, I mean, no, it doesn't, I, I do, I, I have no problem with treating it as an engineering problem, I mean, to, as a kind of cartoon phrase. Um, but uh, I would say the following. So what I, so 
first of all, you cannot start thinking, at least this is my own philosophical viewpoint, thinking about extending lifespan without understanding why it is we live to the age we live, I think is already problematic for me. That is, uh, you need to first of all have a theory that says, look, everything else being equal, a human being should live of the order of 100 years and understand what are the parameters, what are the knobs that we can turn and twist so that we can change that. We can change it from you know 100 to 200 or whatever. So that's the first kind of philosophical point. And, uh, and that's what started me on this whole quest <laughs> and all of this work. Uh, but, uh, and one of the things that I have worked on is to get a mechanistic theory for why we age and uh, why we die and uh, what uh, leads to this uh, hundred years as an order of magnitude for a lifespan and to try to understand what indeed are the parameters. And uh, the, to, to, to make it slightly more precise, uh, what this theory um, can calculate is the maximal lifespan. What is the maximal that you could expect? And it's based on the idea of the following, um, that the very system that is keeping us alive, our metabolic system, has built into it what we call dissipative forces, for want of a better word, wear and tear. That, uh, you know, there's continual damage being done by the flow of, just by the flow of blood through your circulatory system. Certainly, the blood flowing through your capillaries is, it can be quite destructive because you're, it's like pushing fluid through very thin tubes. You know, it has a great deal of resistance. And that resistance means what resistance, physical resistance simply means is that, you know, there's a scraping between the blood and the walls of the, the cells of the, of the capillaries, and that damages them. And that damage creates entropy. That's entropy in the language of thermodynamics. And that entropy causes cellular damage. So you can calculate all that. We have a theory. You can calculate that. And that, from that calculation, you determine that lifespan should scale, maximal lifespan to be more precise, should scale with this quarter power scaling. And it gives sort of a very rough estimate for long longevity. Now, um, that that tells you that the parameters that are um, associated with lifespan are to do with metabolism, not surprisingly, because that's keeping you alive, um, uh, and uh, that also to do with the physics, the physics of materials to do with the um, wear and tear that's occurring at the molecular level, but also, and this is crucial, um, is something that's slightly outside that, but is second in a second kind of second order way is connected to it, and that is the process of repair. Because very important, obviously, to us is that we repair yeah. damage. Um, and, and uh, but where does that repair come from? That repair also has its origins in metabolism. You have to supply metabolic energy to the repair mechanisms to um, uh, uh, forestall early death. So um, you can ask yourself, okay, <laughs> how could I extend lifespan from this picture? Well, there's two ways. One is you have to reduce damage. And the second is you have to increase repair. <laughs> that's kind of obvious. And it's like any machinery. That's why I'm very open to thinking of it as an engineering problem. 
So how could you minimize damage due to uh, metabolism? We said the damage came from metabolism. So one way, obviously, is to reduce your metabolic rate. Well, you, how can you reduce the metabolic rate? Well, you can eat less. Just eat less. That's called caloric restriction. And uh, caloric restriction, many experiments have been done on uh, mice in particular. And indeed, caloric restriction, that is extending lifespan by feeding mice less, has by and large led to an increase in their lifespan. And well, as, as far as caloric restriction goes, I can tell you that it doesn't work for me. <laughs> I, I can last about a day doing it. So it's not, uh, it's not my strategy. But you may be leaving, you may be, well, that's the point. You may end up living longer, but you have to change your lifestyle. Another way to decrease metabolic rate, which uh, is extremely difficult for us, uh, and we're u- almost unique among organisms, but every other organism can do this, and that is lower its temperature. So if you lower the temperature, you lower the metabolic rate because metabolism is derived from chemical reactions. And chemical reaction theory tells you how uh, uh, that things slow down when you decrease the temperature. It's not surprisingly, temperature is the you know is a reflection of the interaction among molecules. And if you lower the temperature, means there's less interaction among the molecules. Therefore, uh, there's uh, the metabolic rate goes down, and it goes down exponentially. So, so a small change in temperature produces a large change in uh, chemical reaction rates and therefore a large change in metabolic rate. And you can predict what this is. However, that's very difficult for us, although there have been experiments uh, on mice, again, where they've introduced drugs that lower body temperature. And the claim there is that it does increase longevity. So there's lots of evidence, uh, I would say, supporting evidence that uh, decreasing metabolism uh, increases lifespan. And, uh, you know, that brings up, uh, you know, a similar issue that you mentioned about caloric restriction. You know, there are drugs, apparently, since they've used them on mice, that would lower body temperature and, uh, and therefore low metabolism, lower metabolism. But goodness knows what other unintended consequences that has. Um, and including just the lowering of metabolism itself, uh, you know, do we want to live long and be couch potatoes? Uh, you know, no, we don't. We want to have kind of, you know, a healthy, lively, uh, passionate life right to the end. Uh, you don't sort of want to extend it for the sake of extending it. That clip touched on the feasibility of something like immortality, But there have been countless poets, authors, and philosophers who have wondered about the wisdom of desiring immortality in the first place. We'll be recommending some of our favorite books and narratives which explore that ironically timeless question. Before we hear our final clip, which is from a solo episode of Making Sense, we wanted to go back to a passage shared by someone who was thinking about this question of immortality while on his deathbed. Christopher Hitchens. Hitch was Sam's friend and colleague. He died in 2011, ultimately succumbing to cancer of the esophagus. While he was dying, he penned a book simply titled Mortality. It isn't quite fair to call it a book. It's more accurately described as a sort of diary, a collection of increasingly disorganized dispatches from his journey into the land of the sick. 
The early, sharply written prose and crafted chapters begin to disintegrate to unchained notes and short prompts by the end of the book, which was compiled and published by his wife posthumously. But the very last note in the book, which came from Hitchens himself, is a quote which he must have deeply related to. It's about the paradoxical freedom which is only possible in light of the reality of death. And the observation comes from Alan Lightman's 1993 novel, Einstein's Dreams. Lightman writes, With infinite life comes an infinite list of relatives. Grandparents never die, nor do great-grandparents, great-aunts, and so on back through the generations, all alive and offering advice. Sons never escape from the shadows of their fathers, nor do daughters of their mothers. No one ever comes into his own. Such is the cost of immortality. No person is whole. No person is free. With this beautiful idea of inheritance, opportunity, gratitude, and finitude in mind, we'll listen to Sam ponder his own eventual death in the next clip. He had just run a non-scientific poll trying to gauge how often his audience thinks about death. About 70% of the respondents indicated that they can go days or weeks without thinking about it. Only 13% reported thinking about it many times a day. This is from episode 263, The Paradox of Death. I probably think about death more in the average day than most people think about it in many months or even a year. I generally don't think about it in a way that I would consider morbid. My thoughts tend to be more in line with the memento mori reflections that are widely recommended by Buddhists and Stoics. Thoughts of this kind need not make a person depressed, though perhaps they make some people depressed. Rather, they can and should inspire us to wisdom and compassion. Do that most important thing now. Express your love now. Relinquish those hang-ups now. Bury the hatchet now. Recognize the nature of mind now. Live fully now. For one day, you will die. But it does seem that many people don't reflect in this way and do their best to avoid thinking about death altogether. And even those of us who think about it a lot still suffer from various forms of death denial. For instance, even though the reality and inevitability of death seem very well established in my mind, more often than not, I'm still shocked to learn that any specific person has died, unless that person was in his or her 90s. Any specific death still seems somehow anomalous to me. My first question is some incredulous version of, what happened? So I do detect in myself some form of death denial, even though I think about the reality of death a lot. And the reality of it is everywhere. I notice more and more that many of the people I admire, people who I read or listen to with pleasure, actors who I enjoy watching in films, people whose thoughts and personalities I can summon in an instant by picking up a book or typing their names into YouTube, I notice more and more that many of these people are dead, 
and some died at an age that I've already surpassed. And I'm also occasionally aware that I'm likely going to occupy this role for other people. I don't think it's totally grandiose of me to imagine that some people will listen to my voice or read my books after I'm dead. Now, I'm 54 at the time I'm recording this. How long will I live? Obviously, I have no idea. But what will it be like for someone who cares about the life I've lived and who finds some value in my view of the world? What will it be like for you to listen to this audio after I'm gone? To know that I lived as fully as you do now, but to know that I no longer do? Well, I know exactly what that's like. I have that experience more or less every day. There's something very strange about this time capsule effect, this one-way communication with the past. It's amazing that we have media that allows us to do this, to have this shock of recognition. You can summon Carl Sagan or Marlon Brando from beyond the grave and fully recognize that they were once as alive as you are now. And we know the precise day that they died. And we also know that the world went on without them. When we think about death, there are different facets of it that we can focus on. We can think about our own deaths, or we can think about the deaths of other people, in particular those closest to us. And these are very different problems. When I think about the deaths of the people I love, the focus is much more on my own bereavement than it is on the fact of death itself. Even though it's true that when I die, I will lose everyone, I won't be alive to experience that loss. So bereavement doesn't really enter into it. It seems to me that the pure reflection on death itself is really best focused on our own case. However, even here it's possible to get distracted by other things. For instance, we can worry about the process of dying, whether it's going to be sudden or after a long illness. Will it be painful or in some other way chaotic? Or will we go peacefully in our sleep? Thinking about the process of dying is really thinking about the specific experiences one will have at the end of one's life. To think about death itself is to think about what happens after that, or about what doesn't happen after that. So it's not the dying, it's the being dead part that interests me here. So today I'm going to say a few things about what it might mean to be dead, and I want to explore certain paradoxes that seem to surround this phenomenon. So we can leave the process of dying aside. It's going to be whatever it will be. And whatever it is, it will be a finite experience, which is to say that however painful it might be in the case of any one of us, there will come a time when it ceases to be painful. Even if one suffers a long illness and a blizzard of medical interventions, there will be a moment when all of that ends. So dying will be like anything else in life. It will be temporary. The part that seems like it might not be temporary is the condition of being dead. Now, what we think about death 
in particular about what happens to each of us after our bodies die, depends on what we believe about two fundamental questions in the philosophy of mind, the nature of consciousness and the nature of identity. The question about the status of consciousness in the natural world is often referred to as the mind-body problem. What is the relationship between mind and matter? Where does consciousness come from? Does it arise on the basis of information processing in the brain? Or is it a more fundamental constituent of matter? Or is matter itself a mere appearance in consciousness, which would then be the true base layer of reality? There are rival metaphysical views here, specifically physicalism, panpsychism, and idealism. And however one resolves the mind-body problem, there remains the problem of personal identity. For instance, in what sense am I the same person, or self, or consciousness, that I was yesterday? What could be the basis of any claim to identity? Is it just a matter of psychological continuity through time? What's the significance of such continuity when we think about replacing parts of ourselves, even parts of our brains? Or stranger still, when we think about the prospect of copying our minds onto some other substrate? What would it mean to create minds that have perfect copies of our memories and desires, perhaps better copies than we maintain normally while living? What would any of this suggest about the nature of personal identity? Now, I've discussed many of these riddles elsewhere without giving anything like final answers to them. But here I want to focus on the question of death as viewed from the inside, from the point of view of the experience of any person who has died. And of course, this will be each of us, ultimately, unless we get to a time where we're actually duplicating ourselves or otherwise perfectly resisting biological decay, each of us will one day be counted among the dead by those who outlive us. But before we get started here, there's one peculiar intuition, often held by religious people, that I think we should dispense with at the outset. And it's the intuition that if death really is the end of us, if it's synonymous with the end of experience, well then that finality robs life of any conceivable purpose, or meaning, or significance. The idea seems to be that the only way for love, or knowledge, or beauty, or happiness to matter, is for these states of mind and states of the world to last forever. It's eternity or nothing. This is a surprisingly common point of view, as I said, especially among the religious. But if you think about it, it is a strange idea, and it's also strange that no one seems to apply it to specific experiences. I never hear someone say that if a play or a dance or a piece of music or a conversation or a hug or a meal or a sunset or anything else doesn't last forever, well then it was pointless. Rather, I think one could easily argue it's the transiency of everything that magnifies the beauty of everything. We'll close now where we started, with the hourglass on the shelf. Take another look. Notice the curtain still obscuring the top bulb. Notice that a grain or two has fallen to the bottom bulb since this compilation began. 
Take a deep breath and hold the image in mind as we close by reading the final paragraph from a book we highly recommend. It comes from the daughter of someone who Sam mentioned in the last clip. Sasha Sagan is Carl's daughter, and she wrote a beautiful book entitled For Small Creatures Such As We, published in 2019. The book is an effort to find wonder and meaning through a secular lens. She closes the book like this. No matter what the universe has in store, it cannot take away from the fact that you were born. You'll have some joy and some pain and all the other experiences that make up what it's like to be a tiny part of a grand, enormous cosmos. No matter what happens next, you were here. And even when any record of our individual lives is lost to the ages, that doesn't detract from the fact that we were. We lived. We were part of the enormity. All the great and terrible parts of being alive, the shocking sublime beauty and the heartbreak, the monotony, the interior thoughts, the shared pain and pleasure. It really happened, all of it, on this little world that orbits a yellow star in the great vastness. And that alone is cause for celebration. So, here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of death. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 104, 209, 306, 189, 289, 86, and 263. As always, the full conversations are recommended as they traverse much more material than we focused on here. There are several relevant Making Sense episodes not included here, which we can recommend. Episode 98 with Siddhartha Mukherjee is all about the science of cancer, and episode 297 with BJ Miller and Shoshana Berger focuses on preparing for death while not clinging to experience. Each included guest has written wonderful books or academic material. The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, comes to us from Frank Ostasecki. Scott Barry Kaufman's most recent book is Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Roland Griffiths has not authored a book for general audiences, but has several academic research papers on psychedelics with provocative titles such as God Encounter Experiences, which compares naturally occurring experiences and those occasioned by the classic psychedelics psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, or DMT. This and other work can be found on griffithsfund.org. Scott Galloway's latest book is entitled The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning, which is not about death, but certainly contains interesting perspectives on meaning in light of our mortality. Jeffrey West has a book entitled Scale, The Universal Laws of Growth, innovation, sustainability, and the pace of life in organisms, cities, economies, and companies. This book is also not necessarily about death, but does fascinatingly analogize the body to larger scale complex systems 
and explores how this scaling makes systems simultaneously more resilient and vulnerable to collapse. Another Making Sense guest, Tim Urban, maintains a popular blog at waitbutwhy.com. His essay from 2015 entitled The Tail End provides an eye-opening graphic visualization of an average human lifespan grouped by categories like days you'll physically spend with your parents, or baseball games that you'll attend, or dumplings that you'll eat. Sam spoke to Urban about this and many other topics in episode 315. From the film world, we'll recommend some classics. Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal from 1957 features a famous game of chess against death. Akiru, a Japanese film from 1952, follows a bureaucrat who finds meaning at the end of his life through building a children's playground. In 2022, the film was beautifully remade and released under the title Living. Harold and Maude is a dark comedy from 1971, which follows the strange friendship between a death-obsessed young man and a 79-year-old woman. It also happens to feature a soundtrack entirely comprised of Cat Stevens songs. Enter the Void is a 2009 film by Gaspar Noe, which is presented as a single, entirely uncut shot from the perspective of a drug dealer and is loosely inspired by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There are countless books to recommend on death. Here are just a few of our favorites. Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Doherty. The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. The Death of Ivan Illich by Leo Tolstoy. And David Eagleman's Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlife, which features very short descriptions of various visions of the afterlife from a theoretical physicist and philosopher. We didn't spend much time with the politics of death and dying, such as physician-assisted dying, but there are some fantastic documentaries on the subject. The 2007 PBS frontline documentary, The Suicide Tourist, and How to Die in Oregon from 2011 are both recommended. From the audio space, the producer and author of this series, Jay Shapiro, can't help but recommend a personal piece he published documenting the grieving process after his father's death. That piece is called Don't Disappear, and it can be found at his website, whatjthinks.com. David Bowie's final album, released just days before his death, is entitled Black Star, and it's an experimental and haunting contemplation of mortality. From the classical music world, Mozart's Requiem and Beethoven's String Quartet No. 14 in C-sharp minor are both deep reflections of death and loss. The painter Hieronymus Bosch's Death and the Miser from 1490 is a well-studied and much-analyzed piece which depicts a surreal scene on a deathbed where the subject is faced with the choice between spiritual and material riches being offered by strange figures. The Epicurus quote we used comes from his letter to Minesius. The best Abraham Maslow work about self-transcendence and death after his heart attack is found in Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences, published in 1964. There are also some wonderful resources available to help have some of these important conversations with friends and loved ones. The website deathoverdinner.com offers a helpful guide to host a dinner party which centers around contemplations, concerns, and orientations towards death. 
This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper. <laughs>